Welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer. And I'm Krista Carmen. And this is... Murder Coaster. The story of professional skateboarder Gator is a distinctly American tale about a rocket to success and a savage tumble to disgrace. It is also a story about the history of skateboarding and Southern California culture. A story of celebrity and fame, of bizarre religious mania, sexual sadism, and murder. Ladies and gentlemen, we present to you the story of Gator and the tragic death of Jessica Bergston, told in five chapters. Let's begin. Prologue, A Corpse in the Sand On April 10th, 1991, an 11-year-old boy camping with his father in the desert in Southern California made a horrifying discovery. The boy and his father were on a lonely stretch of land off of Interstate 8, about 10 miles north of the Mexican border, by the tiny town of Ocotillo. It was still cool when the boy wandered away from his campsite, the rising sun just beginning to heat the vast and barren landscape of sand and rock, dotted with creosote bushes and cacti. In the eastern distance, the Coyote Mountains rose up stark and rugged, bathed in the soft pastels of morning. When the boy was about a hundred feet off Shell Canyon Road, he saw something strange rising up out of the desert sand, as if to tell a secret, something different than the rocks and cacti. When he ventured over to investigate, the boy saw to his shock and horror it was a half-buried human skeleton, picked clean by vultures and coyotes, the remaining skin mummified and blackened by the desert sun. Terrified, the boy ran to his father, and the two raced to town to report their find to the police. The police had no idea whose body it could be. There were no missing persons reported in the area. It was impossible to identify. There were really nothing left but bones. There was no evidence of foul play. Their best bet was that it was a hiker who had gotten lost and succumbed to dehydration and the harsh desert conditions. The teeth were examined and sent out for a match to dental records of missing people, but nothing came back positive. Then, a month later, and over 120 miles away in Carlsbad, a coastal city in northern San Diego County, famous for its beach culture of surfing and skateboarding. A young man entered the police department, saying he wanted to confess to a murder, and that Jesus told him to turn himself in. The man was pleasant and polite, but the police were skeptical, thinking he might be some kind of nut job. Murderers do not usually turn themselves in. But they listened to his story, perking up when he said he'd buried the body in a shallow grave in the desert outside of Ocotillo, where an unidentified body had, in fact, been discovered. The man calmly told them a horrible story of rape and torture, how he'd beaten a young aspiring model in the head with a club, 
bound her to his bed with handcuffs and leather straps, and assaulted her for hours before stuffing her into a surfboard bag and suffocating her with his bare hands. The man told police his name was Mark, but everyone called him Gator, that he was a professional skateboarder and a legend in the skateboarding and surfing culture of Southern California. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is where our story begins. Chapter One, A Boy Named Mark. Mark Rogowski was born in Brooklyn, New York on August 10th, 1966. His parents divorced when he was three, and he moved with his mother and older brother Matt to San Diego. Mark's older brother Matt became his father figure and got him into sports. They were very athletic. Baseball was their favorite. Eventually, they ended up in the city of Escondido. The beach was just a short drive away with iconic surf spots like Cardiff Reef, Swamis, and Tamarack Beach, and a pervasive surf culture existed. But Mark was a bit of an outcast, for he couldn't afford the fashion of OP shorts and hang ten shirts, much less a surfboard. But at seven years old, he was able to get his hands on a cheap, off-brand skateboard. Mark dedicated himself to skating, finding skateboarding to be an unstructured sport, which appealed to him. As he says, skateboarding represented freedom and personal independence. But he resented having to use a shitty cheap skateboard and going to the local skate shops and seeing all the fancy new gear coming out. It made him determined to get sponsored so he could get his hands on that fancy stuff. Then in 1977, the legendary Escondido Skate Park was opened and Mark became a local, fully dedicating himself to skateboarding. The local skate park team asked him to join and he began competing in contests with them. In 1982, he won the Canadian Amateur Skateboarding Championship in Vancouver and earned himself the nickname Gator. In the late 70s, skateboarding was a completely underground thing. The public had no interest in it. It was just a strange subculture in Southern California, and there was absolutely no money in it. The most a skater could hope for was to get a free board, maybe some free clothes. Professional skateboarder Lance Mountain says he only made $15 a month as a professional skateboarder then. But as the boards evolved, going from thin plastic decks with hard clay wheels into longer, fatter wooden boards with a tail that could be used to pivot and hard rubber wheels that absorbed the vibration of rough asphalt, it started slowly gaining regard. And around 1982, skateboarding suddenly exploded in popularity. Skate parks were erected across the planet and skateboard manufacturers became huge multi-million dollar companies. Vision was a skateboard company started in 1976. And seeing this incredible surge of interest, set out to rebrand themselves. They noticed the scrappy dreadlocked gator and sponsored him putting out his own signature board, which became a huge seller. I remember those boards being everywhere as a little kid. And at just 14 years old, Gator was now a professional skateboarder, joining the ranks of the original celebrity superstars of Steve Caballero, Tony Hawk, and Mike McGill. Vert skaters or skaters riding in pools or halfpipes were doing wild aerial tricks that would get named after them. 
Mike McGill did a 540 with a simultaneous front flip. It became known as the McTwist. Gator perfected the 360 spin, and it was called the Gate Air, though now it's just called a Lean 360. Within a few short years, Gator skateboards were selling upwards of 7000 a month, and he got $2 for each of them. So he was making fourteen grand a month in skateboard sales alone. And Vision decided to make a complete line of shoes and clothing fashioned after this feisty, wild teenager, Vision Streetwear. Vision Streetwear exploded across television screens and skateboarding magazines. Mark was portrayed as the rebel rock star, bare-chested beneath a white denim jacket with the sleeves cut off, with ragged, scruffy, spiky hair, pants with zippers all over them. So, so Southern California, epitomizing the beach culture that had seemed out of his grasp as a child. And punk rock as well. Skate videos became the big thing. Kids around the world watching and re-watching their favorite skaters on VHS tapes. Gator made a video and had the classic surf punk band Agent Orange serve as the soundtrack, even featuring them in the video playing as he skated around them. Now, you can still find these videos online, though if you go to Agent Orange's Wikipedia page, you will find no mention of them. Apparently, like many at that time, they today want no connection to him at all. This rebellious punk spirit became infused with who Gator was, as a skater and as a person. And Gator saw himself as a kind of outlaw free spirit, saying, Skateboarding is outlaw. I mean, just putting your skateboard down on the ground is illegal in many places. As iconic old school skater and editor of Transworld Skateboarding Magazine in the 80s, Gary Scott Davis, a.k.a. GSD, says, quote, There's always been this cross of skateboarding and rebelliousness, and it's because everywhere you go to skateboard, or everywhere you used to go to skateboard, you're kicked out and told not to do it. You rode a backyard pool, you're not supposed to be there. You have to climb a fence, sneak in and do it, and you're not supposed to do these things, end quote. Wild and controversial skater Jason Jesse, who was also a brand ambassador for Vision Streetwear at that time, said, quote, Kids want to rebel. Kids want to listen to music their parents don't like. They want to perform sports that scare their moms. I mean, that's what kids are like. But the social climate then was remarkably frightening and conservative. I think that's why skating and punk music was a reaction so far to the left. This anti-authoritarian anger and punk rebelliousness would come to a head in 1986 in Virginia Beach at the Mount Trashmore Ramp. The Mount Trashmore halfpipe was huge, a monstrous thing, famous worldwide to skater kids who drooled over the pictures of it in skate magazines like Transworld and Thrasher. And when the competition, forlornly called East Coast Assault, took place. Nearly a thousand people flocked there. Vert skating was nearing its zenith, and little kids were going crazy seeing their favorite skate stars like Tony Hawk and Christian Hosoy. And when someone would throw a t-shirt or stickers into the crowd, they'd go nuts trying to grab the merch, dogpiling each other, much to the amusement of the pro skaters. There was also a heavy police presence. The Virginia cops were wary of these weird hooligans and their skateboards. 
and punk music like Black Flag and the Dead Kennedys blaring from the speakers and the crowd going into near pandemonium over free T-shirts made the cops even more uneasy. Gator showed up late and had somehow lost his pass and credentials. When he gets stopped at the gate, he just motors on through, driving through the parking lot and up to the ramp, cops gathering on his tail. He gets out of the car, and when a cop grabs him by the arm, he turns, raises his fist, and punches the guy square in the face. He's quickly arrested, and the kids go wild, start hauling rocks at the cops. A full-on riot ensues. The police car's windows smashed out. Total chaos. Far from being reprimanded or ostracized, this incident only served to solidify Gator's reputation as a rebel and made him an underground hero and star. Thrasher magazine featured full-page pictures of Mark being shoved into the police car in handcuffs, reinforcing the magazine's catchphrase, skate and destroy. In a 1987 interview, Mark embraces his violent persona, saying, Skateboarding is a real productive way of venting some harsh aggressions. Instead of breaking a bottle and slashing someone's face, you're throwing yourself at a wall with sweat dripping in your eyes. He even spreads rumors about himself, telling friends that he had walked into a 7-Eleven completely naked, stolen a bottle of liquor, then sat in a cornfield drinking it while watching police helicopters search for him. Who knows if this is true or not? It sounds pretty over the top, but as we'll see, this guy was completely over the top. Vision records video of him sitting by a pool in sunglasses and a beret, flashing his charming, toothy smile, describing himself in grandiose and outlaw terms. I am one of the most elite, talented, and big-headed and versatile skaters on the circuit, but also one of the most blatant and outspoken jerks in the industry. It's easy to say what you want and get away with it when you work for a company like Vision. I love getting arrested. I'm also one of the most illegal skaters on the circuit, too. There's a skateboard tour through Europe, hoping to popularize the booming sport there. And it is complete anarchy. Gator is running around naked, taking off unannounced to go see Prince play in Italy, getting wasted and pulling all kinds of shenanigans, often skateboarding with no clothes on. Yeah, I've seen videos of him skating in a pool naked. I don't know that. I got to tell you, that does take some kind of balls. Because if you fell down naked, oh, in a swimming pool. <laughs> uh, in the end, it was all ego, ego, ego. And the girls went wild for it. The skaters, who'd all been losers and outcasts in school, laughed at for being skaters and into punk rock. They couldn't believe it. Now they were suddenly the epitome of cool, with girl groupies gushing and all awing over them like they were rock stars. A new type of girl subculture erupted. Skate Betty's. Girls obsessed with skaters. And Mark was hot, tan, toned but muscular, a wicked smile that was almost like a joker's grin, and always a gleam in his green eyes. He was the personification of what made skateboarding sexy, tough, punk, slick, cool, but also wickedly athletic. There was no denying his incredible talent as a vert skater, and he was eager to take advantage of the fact that now there were these hordes of girls who wanted to meet him, girls who called themselves skate betties. 
Brittany was his first real girlfriend, a beautiful California blonde who epitomized the beach look and 80s fashion sense. One part Madonna, one part Gidget, one part Susie Sue, but also innocent and pure, wholesome. But Mark was a player and a wild child, always seeing other girls. He went on a couple dates with actress Patricia Arquette, but she said something about the way he kissed freaked her out, and she gave him a fake phone number and avoided him. (laughs) Uh, Then on a skateboarding tour, passing through Phoenix, Arizona, at a competition, he would meet the love of his life, Brandy McLean, and both their lives would be changed forever. Beyond the Shadows podcast. In the darkest corners of our universe lie spaces where even the light won't go. Places where terror and the unknown lurk, always waiting. Join Ryan and Scott on the Beyond the Shadows podcast as we pull back the curtain and peer into the darkness. We'll examine hauntings, true crimes, mysteries, UFOs, exorcisms, reincarnations, mysteries, and all things dark. Join us as we go Beyond the Shadows. Chapter 2. Brandy. Brandy McLean was born in 1969 and grew up in Yuma, Arizona. She was an only child, living with her divorced mother. She was a sweet and bubbly child with a head full of golden hair and a playful smile on her lips. When she was in eighth grade, she moved with her mother to Tucson, which felt like a big city after living in Yuma. There in Tucson, Brandy soon met Jessica Bergston, and the two instantly became best friends. They were both blonde and beautiful with a spunky wild side to them. They became more than just best friends. They were like sisters. Jessica lived with her mom and dad, who was a successful attorney, in a nice big house. And for Brandy, a child of divorce, raised by a single mom, the Bergstons became a surrogate family, offering the stability of a home life and a big family. As the 80s progressed, the skateboarding craze was spreading its tentacles across the country, and Tucson was no different. The two young teenage girls were all agaga over the skateboard boys. As Brandy says, Yeah, being a skate buddy, that was cool. Skateboarding guys were a different type of macho than, say, football players, who you knew were tough because they could take a hit but they weren't the type of guy that could scrape their knee off on some fiberglass and then just spit on it and go back off. I mean, like, scares were just so reckless and so bad boy. Jessica told Brandy there was going to be a huge skateboarding competition in Phoenix, and the girls headed there, hoping to meet their favorite skaters. The gorgeous and bubbly blondes from Tucson had no trouble attracting attention, and soon Jessica was hanging out with Christian Hosoy. He introduced Brandy to Gator. Brandy says it was love at first sight. She says he was charming and charismatic and just knew all the right stuff to say. Yeah, but personally, I think a 20-year-old man hooking up with a 15-year-old girl, I mean, even just innocently, it's fucking disgusting and a red flag right there. She's a child. He's an adult. 
And she's obviously still in high school and in Arizona, but they carry on a long distance romance. Mark flooding her with letters from California, calling her on the phone almost every day. I think it's safe to say this is a grown man grooming an underage girl. Yeah, for for sure. Then he starts flying her out for weekends. And eventually he asks her to move in with him. And she says yes. She's 17 at this point, still very much a minor, and he's 22. But this gorgeous blonde girl and the rebel skateboard boy become the image of skateboarding. Hip, fashionable, sexy. Vision decks her out with a whole new wardrobe, and the two are featured in the pages of all the skateboarding magazines together. And the money is just rolling in. (laughs) Sorry. The money is rolling in, and Mark gets a beautiful house in Fallbrook for the two of them. It's a country house in the hills, surrounded by avocado orchards and vineyards. But all kinds of professional skaters are getting houses in the area. Tony Hawk gets a place not far away and builds an epic ramp where he can practice all day. Mark was on top of the world. He'd been flown to Japan just to sign autographs. He had the number one selling skateboard. He was on the Swatch Impact Tour, where the skaters are treated just like rock stars, skating in arenas with thousands of screaming fans. He's on Club MTV with downtown Julie Brown. He's in Andy Warhol's Interview Magazine. Sports Illustrated for Kids has him giving tips to beginner skateboarders. And then he and Brandy are in Tom Petty's Free Falling video, which was huge all over MTV. It was a wild time. With all the excess of the 1980s, drugs and booze and parties, as Brandy says. We would do coke every night. We'd go to the sandbar and get fucked up. Then we'd hang out in the jacuzzi, get drunk off our asses and go in and have wild sex all night. But Mark is erratic and prone to manic episodes and sudden paranoia. And he'd break up with Brandy for no reason, then come back weeks later apologetic exclaiming his undying love. And his ego knew no bounds. He had business cards printed that said simply, Gator Skateboard Extraordinaire. He became a total asshole and changes his name to Mark Anthony, saying since he never knew his father, he didn't want his name, even though that's where the Gator nickname came from. Yeah, and like, more or less, you know, he's naming himself after a famous Roman general, and people didn't like it. And while the Roman general Mark Antony was a renowned warrior who carried on an infamous affair with Cleopatra, he was considered a traitor and fatally stabbed himself when he realized his efforts to seize power were over. But, you know, maybe Gator didn't read Shakespeare. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, And the tide was changing for Vision Streetwear. Now, I was a total skater kid. I still skate, but I never or any of that vision stuff. It's all like pastels, more Miami than Southern California. This really cheesy MTV 80s looking with berets and bright colors and shit. Me and my friends were all black, tattered jeans, and you know, stuff we got from the army surplus store and vans, we wore vans. I hated vision shoes, so ugly and trendy. I would later rock Airwalks, though. (laughs) And Mark's whole image had done a 180. 
the punk who punched cops and wore ripped up denim, was now in puffy pants, dancing to cheesy music on ads that were being beamed across the country on television. And when the real skaters saw these bright, cheerful ads, it made them sick to their stomachs. They labeled him as a sellout. And skateboarding itself was changing as the 80s turned into the 90s. In the 80s, it had been all big ramps, vert riding, but now it was all about the street. The legendary skate parks like Del Mar were closing down. Bonelesses were obsolete. Now it was ollies and curb tricks, kickflips, rail slides on stairway handrails. The boards themselves completely changed. Instead of these wide things with no nose, plastic rail guards screwed in. The boards were now thin with a large nose just as big as the tail. So you could ride fakey at ease, flip the board around, do nose ollies, nose slides, all street tricks. It was street, street, street as the grunge era of skating took over. You'd be laughed at for wearing pastel vision streetwear. Now it was flannel shirts and wallet chains. And it was a universal thing. Most of the world didn't have abandoned, empty swimming pools in every neighborhood like Southern California. Kids didn't have the means to build ramps, travel to some skate park and pay an admission fee, get their parents' written permission. Anyone could go out and hit the parking blocks and curbs, find a loading dock or stairway with slick handrails. And the ollie, which had been invented by freestyle skaters like Rodney Mullen, evolved into something insane with the new street skaters, like Nataz Kapis and Mike Valley, taking it to a whole new, just mind-blowing level. The old skateboarders were still doing silly shit, like grabbing their boards with their hands and flipping them around during bonelesses or hand plants, silly acid drops, taking their feet off the board. The new style never left the board, never touched the ground, and did tricks that were like something out of a magic show or carnival act where you couldn't believe your eyes heading toward a flight of stairs and leaping skyward in an ollie and using your toe or heel to send the board spiraling as you plummeted down, then landing right on the thing or ollieing up on the handrails at breakneck speed to tap your nose on the slick metal and sliding down the entire stairway on your nose, perfectly balanced, and popping right off at the end of the stairway. It was truly a new world in skateboarding, a new chapter, and stripped of all the glamour and prestige, the rock star attitude. These kids did it solely because they liked the way it made them feel. They did it purely out of love. There are videos of Gator who could do a McTwist on a vert ramp, a trick which entails spinning around a full one and a half times in the air while simultaneously doing a front flip. Now trying to do basic ollies and grinds on a curb, simple street stuff and not pulling it off, getting pissed, throwing his board and screaming. The street skaters were a new breed. The only one of the old bunch who could keep up with their new tricks was Tony Hawk. The rest were becoming dinosaurs. Mark's star was fading and the money with it. All his dreams crumbling. He was living far out in the country, out of touch with the streets where the action was. He was supposed to build this huge vert ramp. But what was the point? Vert skating was dead. Tony Hawk's ramp was trashed. And instead of fixing it, he moved back to Carlsbad 
where the street skating was going on. Now Gator and Brandy were out there in the hills, all alone. Gator grew possessive and jealous, trapping her there, demanding to know where she was at all times, flying into uncontrollable rages. She says he'd burst into anger and his eyes would change from green to black. During one fight, he locked her in the closet. Once, the avocado fields had felt beautiful and tropical, sunlit. Now they were a place of darkness and shadows, isolation. Finally, Gator moves back to the beach, defeated. He starts hanging out with the street skaters, and they laugh at him. He can't do the most basic of tricks, can barely ollie, and he's still riding a big fat board with no nose. Then Vision sent him off on a tour through Australia, where vert ramps were still a big thing. Everyone on the tour says he seemed like a different person. Sullen, aggressive, angry, mean. No longer the rebel with the charming smile. He was frowning and surly, throwing his board at kids. There were constant complaints about him. And then, in front of an entire crowd, when a fan kept insisting he give him an autograph, Gator hauled off and punched the little kid in the face. His Australian sales instantly plummeted to nothing. Then Vision Streetwear, the company built around the image of Gator, went bankrupt and filed for Chapter 11. It had simply gotten too big to exist, with massive stocked warehouses of clothes that were no longer cool at all, no one wanted to be seen in. They didn't have the funds to suddenly change direction towards a more grunge look, had invested too much in the Miami Vice style. Mark was now using alcohol, not as a means to get loose and party, have fun, but as a brooding form of self-medication, trying to drown his growing rage and deep-rooted anger problems. And it all came to a head in the summer of 1990 in Germany at the Skateboarding World Cup event. Mark got blacked out drunk there in Germany and in an act of utter drunken insanity, leapt off a hotel room balcony in a swan dive, thinking he could fly. He landed on a wrought iron fence, impaling his neck, face, and hand. It was a miracle he survived. He woke up in the hospital, covered in stitches, with no idea how he'd gotten there and no memory of what had happened. Back in San Diego, he'd spend months with plastic surgeons, trying to save his modeling career. In Carlsbad, feeling utterly lost, he meets some Jesus freaks on the beach and begins listening to them preach. He befriends a preacher and former pro surfer named Augie Constantino, who'd been in a drunken car accident in Hawaii playing chicken with his friends and severed the quadriceps in his leg, ending his surfing career. It also caused him to have one eye that was out of whack and wandered around in his head. Augie says... I introduced Mark to a personal God, a God of the Father. Mark never had a father to speak of. I showed him Christ, and to him, as the Bible says, he's our own true father. So, of course, that appealed to Mark. Mark becomes a born-again Christian and Bible thumper, becoming just as obsessed with the Bible as he'd been with skateboarding, reading it day and night, praying, getting into all the weird dogma... 
He covered his board in religious stickers and redefined the image of skater as is. And okay, this is some really silly shit. Okay. So the word skater, get this S is study God's word. K is for keep yourself involved at church. A is for always pray. T is for tell others. E is for earnestly seek God's will. And R is for rely on God's Holy Spirit for power. Yeah, that's a stretch. <laughs> Skater. He'd go to skating events and preach. He'd have all these little skater kids sitting down around him as he read the Bible. His old friends didn't know what to make of it. This party animal famous for skating naked and punching cops, now preaching the gospel at skate competitions. Skater found solace in First First Peter chapter 4, verse 3. Then you lived in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. His newfound conversion extended to his relationship with Brandy as well. He began to cling to Old Testament ideas of how a woman was a man's possession, something to be owned. He wanted Brandy to go to church with him, to read the Bible with him. He told her their relationship was too built on sex. They needed to be pure. Brandy thought all the churchgoers throwing their hands in the air with bugged out eyes, praying feverishly and screaming hallelujah. Well, she thought it was all weird and actually kind of creepy. It definitely wasn't her thing. Her thing was the beach, surfing, sunshine, and yeah, sex. As she herself says, We literally had sex five times a day. We were so in love. Then Mark started saying, we can't have sex anymore unless we're married. And I'm like, wait a minute. We've been going out for four years, having mad sex for four years. We can't have sex anymore. I can't deal with this. Later. Brandy met a surfer guy, a big blonde hunk, her own age, and broke up with Mark. This drove Gator right off the edge, and he began to really spin out of control. He started stalking her, calling her at all hours, saying things like, Bitch, you cunt. You're going to fry in hell from your toes. One day, she was at her new boyfriend's mom's house, and the phone rang. It was Mark. He not only traced her back to her boyfriend's mom's house, he'd somehow gotten the number. Creepy, creepy shit. And it just got worse. Brandy came home one day to find her house broken into. Nearly all of her clothing was gone, her jewelry missing, all the things Mark had given her over the years. There were photographs missing, pictures of her and Mark, torn from the frames, and the frames then just thrown to the floor. And when she went to the garage, she found he had stolen her car, too. She reported it to the police, filed a report stating it had to have been done by Mark. But nothing happened, and Mark kept on harassing and stalking her. Eventually, the police called and told her They'd found her car with all of her possessions in it. It had been abandoned in a rural field and set on fire. At her wit's end, Brandy attempted to make amends with him, become friends, talk to him to calm him down. They went out to dinner. 
but he was crazy, arguing with her, irate that she was seeing this blonde surfer. Then he told her. You know what? I should take you out to the desert right now. I should drive you right in the middle of the desert, rape you and beat the shit out of you and leave you there to die. And I would get away with it because everybody would know that you deserved it. Brandy freaked out. She went into hiding, moved all the way across the country to New York, telling no one where she was, utterly terrified of this strange man she'd once loved. Mark says he wanted to see a therapist, that he knew he needed help. But the Christianity he was into ridiculed psychology and said Jesus was the answer to all things, that Jesus would help him with his worsening mental issues and deep, deep depression. But Jesus did not come and help Mark with his declining mental health. Instead, it spun out of control, and the culminating violence climaxed in a horrible night of rape, torture, and death. Hello, I'm Mark. I'm Gina. And together we are Men's Wellness Theater. Or at least we try. Uh, we try to survive it. <laughs> We're the hosts of The Worst, a podcast where I deep dive horrible subjects and tell the story to Gina... And I tell terrible, tasteless jokes to kind of break up the awful, soul-crushing details that you bring us. I try and you try, and that's what makes it great. Yeah, I mean, stop being upset. We are trying our best. And honestly, we're weird people. We find this makes it a little more palatable to get through the horrible details of some of the worst true crime. Yeah, because otherwise, I just want to take an ice pick to my own eardrums. I can't do it anymore. No. So if you're the type of person who finds, you know, Weekend at Bernie's the most hilarious movie ever, we might be up your alley. Give us a try. Absolutely. Just look for Mental Illness Theater on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever platform you happen to use for podcasts. Chapter 3. Jessica. Jessica K. Bergston was born on April 27, 1969, in Tucson, Arizona, to two adoring parents. Even from a baby, she was gorgeous and grew into a tall, blonde, aspiring model. In high school, as we said, she was best friends with Brandy McLean, the two inseparable. It was Jessica that urged Brandy to travel to Phoenix with her for a skateboarding competition where she'd meet Mark. But then, just two years later, Brandy was gone. At 17, she'd moved to California to be with Mark. Jessica visited from time to time. But Mark was controlling and jealous and tried to alienate Brandy from her old friends. He wanted her all to himself. And as Brandy got swept up into the world of gator and vision streetwear and Southern California life, her contact with Jessica became more and more sporadic until eventually they were barely communicating any longer. Jessica was undeniably beautiful, but she was also savvy and tough, very adventurous. And on a wild whim, in early 1991, she decided she'd had enough of Tucson and decided to move to Southern California in search of fun and the beach life. By this point, Brandy was in hiding in New York and didn't even know Jessica had moved to California. But Jessica found Gator's number and decided to give him a call. She was brand new in town, didn't know anyone, and wanted to meet people, to party, to see California. She asks Mark to show her around, give her a tour of the sites, introduce her to all the surfers and skaters. 
She had no idea about the religious mania, the stalking, the threats of rape, torture, and death. And Gator, it appears he was in a state of psychosis at this point, paranoid, delusional. He'd never liked Jessica, always saw her as an obstacle in his domination and control of Brandy, had encouraged Brandy not to talk to or communicate with her. Of course, Jessica had no idea about this either. On Wednesday, March 20th, Gator agrees to take Jessica out on the town. They go out to an Italian restaurant in La Jolla, a very fancy area. They drink a little wine. He hasn't drank it in a long time. It goes right to his head. She starts flirting with him a little bit, you know. He felt conflicted. He was attracted to her. He wanted to sleep with her, but he wanted to be pure for Jesus. Didn't want to partake in the sins of the flesh. In his delusional mind, he began to see Jessica as the party girl that had caused his true love, Brandy, to leave. Somehow, it was Jessica's fault that Brandy had left him, and a rage and deep hatred began to build up inside him. As he would later say, Everything I hated about Brandy, I hated about Jessica. She was the same mold that Brandy was made of. But he kept all of this hidden from her, and instead invited her over to his condo to watch a movie. They then rent movies and go back to his condo, drinking a couple more bottles of wine. Around two in the morning, Jessica decides to call it a night and asks him if he'd drive her home. He agrees, then goes out to his car, saying he's got to find his driver's license first. But instead, he grabs a device known as the club, a red metal bar you can lock onto your steering wheel so no one can steal your car. While Jessica is waiting in the living room, looking at the pictures on the mantel, staring at Gator's favorite picture of himself, of course, skydiving, facing the camera while screaming and plummeting to earth, Gator slipped up behind her, lifted the heavy metal club up over his head, and brought it slamming down on the back of her skull. She fell to the floor, gushing blood so badly it would soak through the carpet and stain the floorboards. While moaning on the floor, a gator stood over her, calling her a harlot and screaming Bible verses at her. He handcuffed her and carried her upstairs, where he shackled her legs to his bed with leather cuffs, cut her clothes off with a scissor. He then, in the words of the homicide detective Terry Jensen, quote, committed every sex act he knew upon her, for over two hours. During this time, Jessica is coming in and out of consciousness, begging him to stop. Then she starts screaming. She's howling for help now. So to silence her, he stuffs her inside a surfboard bag. Once inside, he wrapped his hands around her throat and in a violent rage, choked the life out of her. Once she was dead and his rage subsided, he zipped up the surfboard bag and hauled it out to his garage, placing Jessica's body in the trunk of his car. He then retrieved the cut-up clothing, the handcuffs, and the club, as well as his blood-soaked sheets, and put them in the trunk as well, grabbed his shovel, slammed the lid shut, and headed off into the Southern California dawn, driving east on Interstate 8 as the glaring sun rose into a brilliant blue sky he drives for hours until he is deep in the desert 
on the outskirts of Ocotillo. He pulls up a sandy dirt road named Shell Canyon, steps off at the lonely and desolate spot. He pulls the surfboard bag and body from the trunk, drags it out amongst the sage and creosote, rocks and sand, and begins to dig a shallow grave. He barely makes a dent in the hard desert ground before he unzips the bag and rolls her pale, naked body out into the shallow pit, then shovels a layer of sand and grit over it before retreating back to his car. As he drives back to Carlsbad, he tosses her clothes, his bloodstained sheets, and the club out the window. Once back, he rented a steam cleaner and meticulously cleaned every spot of blood and scrubbed the entire condominium down in an effort to eliminate any trace of her. Hey, horror movie lovers. We want to let you know about an upcoming film called I'll Be Glad When You're Dead. An homage to 80 slashers movies. They got an Indiegogo campaign giving away all kinds of fun swag. So give them some support and love. There's a link in the show notes. That's I'll Be Glad When You're Dead, the Indiegogo campaign. Chapter 4. A Missing Girl and the Gospel. Jessica had been brand new in town, hadn't really made any friends yet, and there was no one to really notice she was missing. It would be her father back in Tucson that would call police in San Diego, growing increasingly frantic with each passing day without a phone call. Feeling the San Diego police weren't taking it seriously or doing enough to find her, he flew out to look for her himself and talk to the police face to face. Jessica's father plastered the entire county with missing person posters. He talked to her friends, even met with Gator himself, who shook his hand and sadly told him, no, he had no idea where Jessica was. Two months passed, with no leads at all. She appeared to have simply vanished. One of the posters Jessica's father hung was on a phone booth outside the 7-Eleven in Carlsbad. This was a favorite spot for surfers and skaters to hang out, and Gator and Constantino would often preach the gospel right there beneath the poster of the missing girl. One night, as they were preaching, a girl walked by in a revealing miniskirt. Ever the Christian prudes, Constantino told her to put some clothes on and to learn to love Christ. It's, just, it's fucking rude. And it's the beach. Everyone is wearing bathing suits all day. Give me a break. And Gator, Gator's famous for running around naked. Whatever. Anyway, the girl just sneered at them and said, I've got nothing to worry about. So Constantino pointed to the missing poster and said, she had nothing to worry about. But where is she now? Could she have been involved in drugs, pornography? Maybe she's dead. The girl ignored him, but Constantino was struck by how Gator was suddenly silent, blank, and turned white as a ghost before turning away and wordlessly wandering off. Later, Gator showed up at Constantino's house, weeping hysterically, calling himself a Judas, saying he'd killed someone. They prayed feverishly. A week later, Gator broke down again and told Constantino, Remember that girl in the poster? That's the girl I killed. 
and Constantino convinces him to turn himself in. Now, Constantino tells a, a couple different versions of this story. And the one that we're using, to be clear, is the first version he gave in an interview to the Village Voice, which really seems most authentic. In another version, much, much later, he claims he had the missing poster folded up in his Bible and dramatically tackled Mark. And I don't know, it seems pretty embellished with Constantino now, the warrior for Jesus or something, not just a creepy perv commenting on a young girl's body. Regardless of how exactly it went down, Constantino told him, Mark, you don't need a lawyer. You don't need innocent until proven guilty. What do you need a lawyer for? If you answer to a higher power, if a person is accountable to God, he's accountable to society. The Bible says that. And uh, does the Bible say that? I don't know, but it's terrible fucking advice. Utter bullshit. Get yourself a fucking lawyer. <laughs> the police themselves were flabbergasted. They'd never had someone confess to a murder that detectives didn't even know had happened. While the body had been found a month earlier, it was basically just a skeleton and couldn't be identified, and there was no way of determining the cause of death. To corroborate his story, Gator led them to the site and watched as they photographed the area and dug around for more evidence. Police went to his apartment, finding no evidence of a crime at first. The place scrubbed spotless, carpets steam-cleaned. But when they sprayed luminol around the living room, the place lit up like a Christmas tree. At some point, there had been blood everywhere. They pulled up the carpet and found there had been so much blood, it had soaked through the carpet and stained the actual floorboards themselves. The confession hit the media like a bombshell. It was front-page news locally, and the sensationalistic national television shows all covered it. Hard copy, doing a very tacky, dramatic reenactment of the rape and murder. The press was obsessed with the anti-authority skateboarding image and combined it with the sex and bondage aspects of the murder, the handcuffs and black leather straps. One of the skate videos Gator did with Brandy was called Psycho Skate, and they went wild with that name. And like the punk scene reaction to one of their own being a murderer last week when we covered Fang, many worried this horrible crime would tarnish skateboarding, cause it to be seen as something that it wasn't. Thrasher magazine said, quote, it's likely the skateboarding world will be placed under a microscope in the media. Let's just hope that we can all remain strong, end quote. Harry Gladstone of Fishlips Skateboards said, quote, skating's no more inherently violent than heavy metal is inherently satanic. But people in the media tried to make it seem as if skating is a threat to the youth of America. I think you'll find that most skaters won't even talk about Gator, end quote. And also like the Fang murder, it divided the community as well. There was graffiti saying, free Mark Anthony. But there were also bumper stickers saying, skateboarding is not a crime, but murder is. Mark Anthony should die. Mark Rogowski was charged with, quote, special circumstances, end quote, namely committing a murder during rape, which under California law can warrant the death penalty or life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Now indigent, having squandered his skateboard fortune on useless toys and drugs and alcohol, he was appointed a public defender. But he really lucked out 
with a self-described glory seeker named John Jimenez, a former PTA president who drove a Harley and was quite the character. Jimenez challenged the validity of the confession, saying Gator's minister had no right to turn him in. He appealed the rape charge, insisting the decomposed body could show no signs of forced rape, which was true. It, it was just a skeleton. Like many defense attorneys in sexual crimes, he tried to blame the victim, disgustingly telling reporter that she was a slut that loves sadomasochistic sex and had slept with the entire University of Arizona basketball team. Unfounded, most likely complete bullshit. But you know what? What if it was true? That doesn't give someone the right to murder her. Disgusting. But the higher court refused to toss out the rape charge, and in order to avoid the death penalty or life without parole, and at a hearing in January 1992, Gator pleaded guilty to first-degree murder and rape. In a statement, he told the court a mouthful of ridiculous psychobabble, quote, Two months prior to the incident, I found myself in the midst of some surprisingly strange and almost uncontrollable feelings. All at once, the plague of vile visions and wicked imaginations and the daily battle to suppress them was overwhelming. It's no exaggeration to say I became completely enslaved to these devious mental images and unescapable thoughts. I turned my back on God in several ways. Firstly, sex outside of marriage, promiscuity, premarital sex, and cohabitation the disease of jealousy, and the unhealthy obsession that so often attaches to these. Secondly, pornography and its addictive character, ranging from risque public advertising all the way to hardcore S&M, this dehumanizing of women and men, and its dulling all the senses occurs at all levels. Porn is a consuming beast. Thirdly, I closed my ears and heart to God's counsel. So basically, he's blaming out-of-marriage sex, pornography, and risque advertising campaigns for why he brutally raped and murdered a completely innocent girl he barely even knew. Yeah, and it's funny that I would say maybe 99.9% .9 of the population has sex before marriage, has watched pornography, and seen risque advertising, yet they don't murder and rape people. On March 6th, Gator's sentencing took place. Gator apologized to Jessica's family, saying, God has changed me, and it was no typical jailhouse conversion. I sincerely hope that you can accept my apology for my carelessness. <sighs> At which point Jessica's father grew enraged, stood up, and screamed, Carelessness? Carelessness? He is a child murderer and child rapist. He is evil incarnate. Cowards die a thousand times and he will die a thousand deaths. He raped her and raped her and raped her and then thought, let's kill her. We couldn't say goodbye to Jessica because that filth left her for the coyotes and the goddamn birds to eat. He says he's undergone a religious conversion. If he underwent a religious conversion, it was the evil degradation, and filth. 
the judge sentenced Mark Gator Rogowski to consecutive terms of six years for forcible rape and 25 years to life for first-degree murder. Chapter 5. Lying, posing, scum behind bars. In prison, Gator changed the story to completely blame Jessica. What he said makes me utterly sick and disgusted. He said he was led into a sexual situation that he didn't want anything to do with and was scared to be discovered with a, quote, wayward woman. A wayward woman. This is a quote from this piece of shit scum. He actually called this innocent murder victim a wayward woman. I hate him. He says, quote, there were a lot of little kids in my neighborhood who would have the Bible studies with me. I was being an example to these impressionable kids for them to see me with this woman and all that had been going on, the wine bottles and cigarettes. It would have been devastating in my attempt to quiet her in her intoxicated and belligerent state. I put my hands over her mouth. She must have just had a seizure or a stroke. Of course, none of this explains all the blood on his living room floor. He didn't just try to quiet her. He hit her in the head with a club. The bloodstains prove it. It was obvious he had clubbed her there, which goes along with his original confession when Jesus demanded he tell the whole truth. Yeah, you know, it's funny the way these guys who preach the Bible constantly are always changing their stories. Like, what, they never read the Ten Commandments? The ninth one is, thou shall not give false witness. That's, they're pathetic lying hypocrites. When asked in prison if he misses skateboarding, he says, no, not at all. Which, like, I don't get it all. Because, you know, fuck the money, fuck the fame, all that bullshit. It's about the feel of the wind in your hair. The thrill of racing along. The zen of a nice long carve. Shit, just the sound of those wheels clacking against the concrete is a warm blanket for me. But I guess for Gator, it was all about the fame and the fortune, which makes him not only a murdering rapist, but a literal poser as well. Yep, that's right. I just called Gator a fucking poser. He's a poser, a hypocrite, and a liar, as well as a murdering rapist piece of garbage. Here, here. In 2011, he was eligible for parole, but was denied. He was again denied in 2016. But on December 10th, 2019, the parole board recommended him for parole, and the decision was finalized. Looked like Gator was going to be a free man. But on April 27th, 2020, California Governor Gavin Newsom reversed the parole recommendation, stating he needed to gain deeper understanding of his crimes. Yeah, I mean, I can't help but agree. Blaming that poor innocent girl, such a piece of shit and all holier than thou. Preaching about God and blaming pornography. Fuck that poser scum. And as of right now, Mark Gator Rogowski sits in Donovan State Prison, preaching about Jesus, claiming he doesn't miss skateboarding at all, and saying he killed and raped an innocent girl because of risque ad campaigns. Fucking hell, man. We're just going to leave it here. Uh, let him rot. And thanks so much for listening, dear listeners and fellow freaks. We'll be back next week with more tales of murder and mayhem. Yes, we got punk rocks most infamous murderer and hey you know we want to hear from you 
Do you have a case you think we should cover? Did we get something wrong? Do you just want to say hi? Drop us a line at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. That's murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. Take it easy. We'll see you next week.